it's like what's happened over time is that every time we give ourselves some sort of constraint that other businesses and we ourselves might regard as kind of a risk, we learn to innovate and that that innovation has become now the business model for the company. You are listening to The Real Leaders Podcast, your number one source for impact leaders harnessing capitalism to sustain the planet, people, and profits. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards, and that message was from Vincent Stanley, the Director of Philosophy at Patagonia. And in today's episode, Vincent shares the origin of Patagonia, how they see their role in society, and the secret to sustaining growth with environmental restrictions. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, let's give it up for the real Vincent Stanley. Enjoy. And welcome, Real Leaders fans, to this special interview with the Director of Philosophy at Patagonia, Vincent Stanley. Vincent, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. And Vincent, uh, we just to give some uh, viewers back home listening to this on audio as well, we are currently at in Ventura, beautiful Ventura, California at the Patagonia headquarters. And Vincent, you've been here for quite some time, haven't you? Yeah, I started at the company 46 years ago uh, when we were still a, a small mountain climbing equipment company. And, and it was that year that we pretty much started to create Patagonia to create a clothing business. And um, I've had some time off for good behavior, but for most of those 46 years, I've I've worked here. So uh, you said it was a mountain climbing company. What was like the original intent and the original mission of Patagonia? Well, I think it's important that we came out of climbing. So the founder, Yvon Chouinard, was a, a, a climber in his teens and he couldn't find the equipment he needed uh, capable of doing the big walls in Yosemite that uh, uh, he and his friends were pioneering at the time. So he borrowed $800 from his parents and uh, bought a used uh, uh, drop forge, uh, set up in the backyard, and started to make uh, pitons that were became well-known for their quality. They, they were made out of hard steel, and they would last for infinite placements as opposed to the, cli- the pitons climbers had previously used, which only cost 15 cents, but they were malleable and they only worked one time. So when we got into clothing, I mean, it was interesting. If you if you start a clothing company from scratch, you can think about having your high-end line or your, your department store line and then your uh, uh, whatever you want for the outlets. But if you're making climbing equipment, you can't think that way because the customers are trusting their lives to what you're making. And the world was, the climbing world was so small at that time. I remember inspecting uh, ice axes for hairline fractures and realizing that if I fell asleep on the job, I would hurt someone. And it wouldn't just be anyone, it would be a friend, a friend of a friend, a friend of a friend of a friend, because the climbing world was that small. So when we got into clothing, and we got into clothing primarily because primarily to support the climbing equipment company. We had some uh, wonderful share of the world market. I don't think anybody did any figures to evaluate what it was, but we definitely had a great reputation. We sold uh, equipment around the world, and we could only really make 1% profit because 
again, the world was so small and the investments in tools and dyes were so great. So part of the idea of getting into clothing was to get into a business that could be more profitable and could support um, the hardware. We even thought of it as kind of our irresponsible business. I mean, clothing was easy, you know, it didn't, uh, uh, cotton doesn't rust. Uh, 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 we just thought of it as a, as a kind of a soft business compared to what we were doing. We discovered very soon that we didn't know very much about the clothing business, that it was pretty hard, that we had a lot to learn. But I think we also never lost the habit of making the highest quality that we knew how to make. And that was, that was still the origins. I, I make fun of us moving into what we call software. But um, in fact, the first cl clothes we made were rugged and durable and could withstand uh, use on, on a climbing in a chimney or exposure to stone. And okay, so what I'm really taking from this is the climbing business, lives are on the line. You're talking about yeah. the hairline fracture, right. you mess this up, you yeah. give someone a product that's not working, you could potentially kill someone when they're you know yeah. hundreds of feet up. Um, and then you move to the clothing business to support this business because it was easy right. and you knew some people in the area. And, yeah. um, but how, how did that mission, that intent to protect these lives, how has it changed or has it changed now in, in 2019 when you're one of the biggest you know, clothing companies yeah. in the world? It's not, it hasn't, you know, the, 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 we make a lot of technical clothing that support people in very difficult climates and in very difficult conditions. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, it's not the same as, uh, as making hard goods. But at the same time, I think we, we developed the habit of making very high quality goods and we never lost that. Mm -hmm. And the thing that's carried over um, for the whole time we've been in business is that all of our original employees, except for myself, were climbers and surfers. And there's something that happens to you, I think, when you're a mile from the road that you, uh, your, your experience of the world really changes when you're, at, at once you feel more self-reliant and then you're also more vulnerable to the forces of nature. It's a more beautiful world than the built world. It, and you have this real experience of wildness. And I, and I think if you have that experience, you also feel the need to protect those places where you felt that. Mm. And that carried over into the clothing company. The fact that people really loved wilderness and nature and wanted to protect it. And that has never left us. I was just going to say, me and my friend Noah right here, we were talking in the car yeah. coming up here. Noah's a city boy. He's from Pasadena. Yeah. He hasn't really camped before. Uh -huh. uh, do you think that's a problem that people are, are kind of missing in their lives, that spiritual connection to the outdoors? I, you know, I, I think if anybody who has that experience, again, they, they really value it. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I think it is I think it is important for people to have because it's hard to love a place where you it's it's hard to defend nature if you don't have a kind of regard or a direct experience of it. Yeah, I like what you also said. You know, uh, it's it's more beautiful than the world that we built um, because it's been evolving and changing for millions and millions of years. 
um, where business is a little bit more more brand new, um, but people and a lot of business owners aren't willing to maybe pay an extra penny for an organic or a very trade fabric. Um, how have your environmental or how have the, um, maybe this is a better question, are there any trade-offs um, for thinking about the environment and its impact um, versus your economic profitability? You know, I, I think for, I, I think they're, they're more imagined than real. Um, oh, okay. You know, going back, I think that one of the things that we actually learned a lot about business from having a kind of love of the wild and having that experience because you become more adaptable um, when you're dealing with nature. Um, and I think that that helped us out in the early years of the company. But directly to your question, what's happened with us over time? So, we would just actually the way we've made decisions is perhaps a little different than other companies make decisions mm. when we decided to go to organic cotton it's because we stumbled across the the discovery that conventionally grown cotton involves so many toxic chemicals mm. and we decided you know we really don't want to be responsible for using this cotton. It was something like, 20, at that time, 25% of all the chemicals used in agriculture were used on cotton, which was 8% of the, the land. And the more we investigated, if you go out to the cotton fields, then and now, um, the organophosphates that are used for uh, fertilizers were originally developed as nerve gases for World War I, and they smell that way. So. What we did is we would discover something like that and say, okay, we really don't want to be doing this. We'll do whatever it takes to not do that. So we made a decision in 1994 to change our entire sportswear line over to organic cotton in an 18-month period. It was costly. It was difficult. We almost had a, a revolt on our hands from the employees who say, okay, I've got to do everything I did last season to develop the line, to design the clothes, to spec them and color them and take them to the major customers. And what you've done is you've ordered all of the cotton for our sportswear from organic farmers who have no connection to the global supply chain. They don't know the spinners who turn that fiber into yarn. They don't know the mills and the uh, that turn that into a, a knit or a woven and so what we would do is actually take employees out 40 at a time to the cotton fields to experience what these conventional fields were like to you know go by the ponds that were so polluted with selenium that the uh, farmers hired old guys with shotguns to warn off the birds so they wouldn't land on them. And people would come back from this, from these trips mm. and say, you know, this is a real pain, but this is worth it. And we want to help the company achieve this. So what's happened over time, I apologize for the long answer to your question, but I, but I think what's happened over time is that every time we give ourselves some sort of constraint that 
other businesses and we ourselves might regard as kind of a risk, we learn to innovate and that that innovation has become now the business model for the company. Another example is if I were in the fashion business and I went to FIT in New York, I could choose from hundreds of fabrics from their fabric library to develop a, a sportswear line. Yeah. And if I'm from Patagonia, there are only a handful of fabrics that I can look at because we're concerned about the chemicals used in the dyes or the labor conditions in the mills. But we know those fabrics really well. And we know the mills that make those fabrics really well. And that depth of knowledge actually helps us develop new kinds of fabrics that perform in a different way. So you have a stronger relationship with your suppliers right. now because of in, in your your workers in, uh, as well by yeah. going to these places, seeing right. how they're made, seeing what's important and what's, yeah. I guess, maybe what's the right thing to do. Right. Uh, yeah. And those relationships are important. important. At one point we had... Uh, when we were half the size we are now or third the size we are now, we had over 150 garment uh, sewing factories that we dealt with and we cut that down to 45 just so we could have the close relationship. So again, sort of back to your question, is it a trade-off between um, a business goal and an environmental goal? And I think the correct answer is that if you're, that if you integrate your social and your environmental goals into your business strategy. Mm. It's not a trade-off at all. It's a, it's a parallel development. It's a strategic development of your company that takes advantage of the relationships and the uh, knowledge that you gain by taking a certain test. Right. And to go one step further, you, you were just mentioning, I believe, um, Patagonia was able to do that because of the high quality products right. when you started. So it was, it was an easy transition to maintain that uh, intention to yeah. protect the planet and, and go to a sustainable source because of your values with nature. Right. And because of the owners. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, Patagonia is still owned by the Chenard family and that those those values were so strongly held by the people who owned the stock and who made the decisions. They were also very strongly held by the people in the middle of the company. So the culture always supported these decisions, even when they were difficult, as I mentioned with organic cotton. That may have been the most difficult transition we ever made. And, uh when we think of the fashion industry right now, I believe Patagonia like uses like 69% recyclable uh, fabrics, uh, garments uh, for their clothing products, whereas the industry standards about, I think it's like 13 or 11. Um, but you've also made the pledge or the company has made the pledge to go 100% by a certain year. I can't remember what yeah. that is. Um, but w what's like the strategy behind that? And do you think uh, the industry as a whole will reach that 100% mark by a certain year eventually? Yeah, that's a great question. I don't, I don't know about the industry. For, for us, we've committed to becoming carbon neutral by 2025. But I think more important than that, we've identified, in terms of our environmental footprint, our impact, 85% of that comes from textiles. It comes from the fabrics. And that doesn't even include zippers and trims. About half the line comes out of a field in the form of cotton or hemp. And about half the line comes out of an oil well. And for 
people listening to this back home, we're talking about uh, coal emissions, right? Uh, CO2 being produced by coal in the textile uh, manufacturers. Yeah. We're talking about transportation, transportation yeah. trucks. Yeah. Um, and when we're talking about nylon or polyester, they're coming out of, directly out of an oil well. Mm, right. Even though we use recycled content. So so we have a kind of twin goals. Is one is we're, we're um, very interested and invested in the idea of regener regenerative organic agriculture for cotton and hemp and also for our little food company, Patagonia Provisions, because it takes the organic standard one step farther. Organic really just covers you in terms of chemicals. It says, okay, we're not going to use uh, chemicals for fertilizer or pesticides. But regenerative organic is a standard that says, okay, we're going to pay attention to everything that creates soil health, um, from uh, crop rotation to intercropping to companion planting to um, uh, everything to using deeper rooted plants. And when you actually bring the soil back to health, it has a tremendous capacity to absorb carbon, to sequester carbon and draw it deep into the ground. So we're very interested in this for, especially for cotton. We have an experimental program going right now in India. Um, and we see this as the future of the, for the fibers that we, that we farm. Um, it, for polyester and nylon, it's a kind of a different question. It's what we would like to do is either make everything out of 100% recycled plastic, make it out of trash, or uh, make it out of some biological source. It doesn't necessarily displace land use for, for food. So that's our goal also by 2025. And whether the industry can come around to that, what we would hope is that you know, for other companies, they may view this as a tremendous risk we don't view it as a tremendous risk because this is the way we've been doing business for a long time. So we hope if we can prove successful and um, uh, get our work done well, that others will follow. And you touched on the point with the B Corps and yeah. shareholder pressure, and I wanna go over that, I wanna go right back to that. Yeah. Um, does your company, Patagonia, being a certified B Corporation, um, do you feel less shareholder pressure than say a, a company who is an S Corp or a C Corp um, in terms of the decisions that you make with your stakeholders and environmental yeah. costs? Yeah, we feel no pressure because we're, and it, uh, it has more to do with the fact that we're family owned by a family that's strongly committed to these values. Okay. Um, where the being a B Corp really helps us though is that the uh, B Lab impact assessment, which all B Corps have to take regularly um, is the only holistic look that we have at all of our business practices on how we affect employees, how we affect the community, how we affect nature. Um, and it's become really valuable to us. So we've, we've upped our score every, you know, they have a, a score from zero to 200. You have to be reach a score of 80 to become a B Corp. Um, We've kind of climbed up the ladder, but it really helps. That assessment helps us look at where we think we have uh, work to do, and then uh, we'll go ahead and make changes. You mentioned our high use of poly uh, of uh, recycled uh, content. 
Um, and we were patting ourselves on the back because most of our products that are made of polyester were recycled or had recycled content. But uh, using the impact assessment, we looked at it by weight and said, you know, we're kidding ourselves because some of our best products, our best selling products are completely virgin. Oh. And when we, yeah. when we discovered that, we made a switch within a year or two to recycled content for those. Virgin just being just polyester, yeah, non-recycled. Oil, oil, oil. Okay. Because I, I saw in the handbook that you made in 2014, Patagonia uh, didn't do as well on the B impact assessment as the year prior. What decisions did Patagonia make after that realization to then increase yeah. that score? And did it have an effect? Well, I think we we did overall we went up, but we went down in certain oh, categories. Oh, yeah, and I, I don't remember the I don't remember the circumstances on that. So. Okay. But it might be a good assessment each year after you take it to realize maybe where you're having an impact and where you can improve yeah, exactly. on. Exactly. Okay. And do you think all businesses can be a B corp corporation? Well, it's interesting. I would have said no two years ago, um, but. But we're seeing now a tremendous amount of interest from businesses of all size. Um, and a couple of big examples are Unilever. Mm. Um, uh, Unilever, several subsidiaries have become B Corps, and Unilever has identified what, what they regard as their sustainable businesses as supplying half of their profit, half of their growth. Danone is another example. It's a French company. Uh, yogurt down in yogurt and Evian water and a bunch of baby food brands and their CEO is committed to uh, making all of Danone uh, a B Corp and that's a 26 billion euro company the last time I looked and the interesting thing is that they bought in Danone in um, a year and a half ago bought White Wave which was the largest organic uh, dairy company in the United States that's a $6 billion company. It was about six times the size of any existing B Corp. And Danone brought in a woman named Lorna Davis, who had once run Nabisco in China, and a very capable person. And they embedded her in the B Lab offices in New York and said, let's figure out how we can work with B Lab to actually intelligently assess a company this size. They thought it would take three years. They did it in one year. And Lorna attributes that quick turnaround to the commitment of the younger people in the company. Mm. There was 100 people involved in gathering the data and doing the work to make it a B Corp. At the same time, Emmanuel Fabe said he was getting a loan from a consortium of 12 banks for 2 billion euros. And the terms of the loan uh, the interest rate is reduced for every subsidiary that becomes a B Corp because the banks assess less risk because of better governance, basically better governance and less risk from, from B Corp. So that's a big change. And there's also evidence that B Corps have a, B Corp startups have a higher survival rate than um, non-B Corps. So I think people are beginning to look at this as this is not just a way to uh, do something good on the side and market it. This is really a way to do business. 
and, and governance being a big part of that. Governance being a big part of it. But it's, it's also, I think, it's really formed by, oh, I think there's a gradual realization that I've seen gradual for a long time, but I've seen it gathering steam over the last few years regarding both climate change and also social inequity, which is tearing at the fabric of the developed world. And what are the, what are the responsibilities of individuals, of civil society, which is, includes NGOs and families and non-governmental organizations, mm -hmm. but also what are the responsibilities of business when you have a crisis like that? Right. Then my sense is that every business has kind of a twofold responsibility. One is in developing its future, how can we develop products and services that are actually going to help us all reach, help our grandchildren thrive mm -hmm. in the next 30, 40 years? And then two, how do we deliver in a way that reduces our impact on nature and also that has a positive effect on our communities and our employees rather than an extractive negative effect? Um, so that's where I think business responsibility lies. And uh, I noticed that you have on the, on the back of your uh, spring 2019, the SDGs. All of them. L17. You know that that was a that's a tremendous boon to business. It wasn't designed for business people. It was designed for all the forces in society. But what it means is 183 countries have signed on to an understanding of what we need to do by 2030 in order to address the most the world's most significant problems. So I think a combination of looking at the SDGs and looking at the B Lab impact assessment business people really have uh, guideposts that they did not have before 2015, before 2012. Now let's skip forward four months from now. Yeah. 2020, big yeah. year coming up. Right. Um, what's your advice to business leaders and how might they be able to take that next step in terms of the governance that we were just talking about? Well, it depends on, you know, I. Uh, it depends on what kind of business we're, we're talking about. I mean, I think that there's, uh, for most existing businesses, I think everybody's been grappling with the idea of, of purpose. And purpose is kind of broadly, uh, it's never used very specifically. Mm -hmm. But I think what it means is that businesses look at the world and they see the depth of the challenges, and they say, we've got to figure out who we are in order to navigate this territory, mm -hmm. even before we talk about being a good guy or how we're going to be a good, a good citizen player. We have to figure out who we are just in order to do business in the future. And I think that that's a great exercise, but I think when you identify your purpose, you also have to identify the purposes you're going to serve. and. Um, so I think that that's an important second step for businesses that are going through that process. Now, as a publication, I have to be fair. So here's the question: yeah. um, You know, um, oil it, as, as 
as much carbon dioxide um, emissions it does put out, it has done a lot of good things for economic development mm-hmm. in countries, in businesses, technology, innovation. Yeah. Um, is there a trade-off if we were to decrease um, the oil consumption um, in go to an alternative energy as you know as, as a plan as a whole and as a business yeah, I think it's an interesting question but it, you, you you have to divide the answer up into what's possible and then what seems politically possible at the moment right um, because I think all the indications are that you could certainly begin to severely reduce fossil fuel use and increase the use of alternative sources of energy, especially from wind, um, solar is developing um, uh, storage capacity, um, and for and people can I mean do what we're doing. Look at where your biggest impacts are coming from, and then start to chip away at it. Right, but yeah, you need but the political I, yeah. will, you know, political will to start to move in that direction. We don't even have a you know we have. Um, uh, socialized, we have private profits and socialized costs. So everyone is bearing the cost of, of uh, the pollution and the, and the warming atmosphere, but nobody's charging the people who are responsible for that. You know, it's really interesting. We have, a, like, even though we are, you know, a sustainable business nation magazine, yeah. we have a ton of climate deniers on our yeah. Facebook page, on that comment all the time. Yeah. Um, and when I say climate deniers, I don't, it doesn't actually mean they don't think the climate is changing. They just think the climate's always been changing. Uh-huh. What evidence that you've, have you come across that's really made you convinced that we need to limit our impact on the environment that the climate is changing because of carbon dioxide emissions? Well, I mean, I think that we even see the, we've been talking since 1991 about the environmental crisis. Mm -hmm. And we see the environmental crisis is even larger than climate. Um, Almost first and foremost is the loss of biodiversity. Mm. Um, Every living system depends on every part of that system. So, you know, the butterflies arrive in the Jackson Valley at a certain point so that the grass will grow and the buffalo will feed on it. When you start to thin out the web of life, and it's something we're not conscious of because we're in a room with lights and a water faucet, um, we're, we're not conscious of natural systems, but when those systems start to get frayed, we all become more vulnerable, including human beings. So that's the first thing. Um, we've lost something like half the mammal species in the last 50 years. Um, we've lost insect populations. Uh, bees, which are responsible for 30 to 40 percent of food supply, are, are endangered. So, and then when you get to the issue of, of, of the warming climate, the, the real issue are, are, are the, the gases that are warming the atmosphere um, that um, are creating the warmer climate down here. And then the two forms that take are more extreme weather events, and I think there's an awful lot of evidence for that. And the second is rising sea level, and there's it's incontrovertible that sea levels are rising. The question is how fast. For 
you know, the, you can play with statistics, but I think it's pretty overwhelming that actually the the predictions that have been made for melting ice caps and all that are actually reality is worse than what the predictions were. The evidence starts to get real too, I think, for people. You, you might question, okay, is it climate or is it climate? Is it weather or is it climate? But if you were in Puerto Rico and you didn't have electricity for six months, or you were here in December of 17 with a, a wildfire in December that ran 50 miles, displaced 75% of our employees from their homes. We had people working in kitchens to move inventory and pay the bills, and then they'd have to move the next day to someone else's kitchen because the smoke would come in on that community. Um, if you were in the wealthy neighborhood of Houston and suddenly learned that you were in the path of a dam that uh, broke. Um, so I think that the, the more incidents that we have, um, the less the less room people will have to kind of deny the changes that are upon us. And again, it's not just climate, it's, this, it's biodiversity loss, it's you know, acidification of the oceans, yeah. uh, it's the loss of fresh water, which is gonna challenge China and the Soviet Union and the United States, Ogallala Aquifer, um, it's the loss of soil. Um, it's the pollution of, of water from agriculture. So all of those things constitute the crisis. And I think it's much harder to see, you know, in 1973 when I started here, Earth Day was three years old. But it was still true in those days that if I drove the van to LA from here, I could expect my eyes to be watering when I got out mm -hmm. because the smog was so bad. Mm -hmm. um, you could dip, my favorite horror story, you could dip black and white film into Lake Ontario and pull it out and it would have an image mm. because the chemicals in it were so bad. Uh, we're so close to those in the developer bath. But clean air, clean water, these were great laws that we passed in the 70s. But I think that they also concealed some of the underlying problems that we're just using natural resources at a faster rate than we can replenish them and we're also poisoning uh, 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 the earth faster than the earth can recover from. Yeah, it's an interesting argument um, because they say, I've done some yeah. research, I have yeah. to know their side and how they yeah. think. Yeah. Um, so they say, you know, post-industrialization, uh, the temperature dropped in 1970, 1980, like three degrees, mm -hmm. and now it's back up. Whereas I say, um, and the, what research says in the last three decades, which is actually yeah. 1990, we've done yeah. more damage and we've almost quadrupled our carbon emissions yeah. in these last yeah. couple of years. And that's why temperatures yeah. are rising and causing all these things like ocean, yeah. ocean acidification, yeah. extreme weather events, you know, 150 right. million projected refugees by 2050. Right. Um, there's a lot of big problems. And that's why the United Nations set those goals right. um, to combat all these different things. But it is an interesting topic. So. Um, I guess when there's a when we're trying to think of solutions, there's no yeah. one size fit all approach. There never will be. Right. Um, but for as someone listening to this, is this an individual issue? Is this something that I need to be learn learn about? Should I, where to recycle my clothes at, mm -hmm. or is this an individual issue that I need to take to my business to then structure something that could have a yeah. potentially a greater impact? It's, it's kind of the answer is everybody. It's. it's Everyone's got a pitch in. But the real, the, there are all kinds of areas where different parts of society are influential. Of course, when government sets a policy, 
right. that moves. And when China decides they're going to go, they're going to stop building coal plants, they're responsible for twice the amount of emissions that we are. That will be huge. But business is something like 80% of, uh, uh, of the carbon is, is really, it's produced by businesses, you know. Right. And consumers and citizens play a big role because if, if everybody use, refuses to use single-use plastic, then businesses have to follow suit. But businesses can also act on their own. Mm. And it's really important that we do so because we're the ones that create these products that create the waste. And, and that's what's interesting because capitalism, I don't think capitalism has ever been 100% sustainable because it's always changing. There's always uncertainty yeah. with what politicians are doing. Hence, what China just lowered their uh, currency by seven cents the other day. That's going to affect, um, you know, American businesses. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to affect maybe your business. Who knows? Um, how, how, you know, when I think of sustainability, obviously I think it's the right thing to yeah. do. Do you think this is a long form approach, and do you think this is possible for businesses yeah. in the long term? Well, I think it is. I mean, I, I, when you get down to it, there's this law, you know, the, the second law of ther- thermodynamics oh. that that you're you don't get rid of waste. But on the other hand, it, it, it's interesting when you when you look at the word the word sustainable. When Evo and I wrote a book called The Responsible Company, and we avoided the use of the word sustainability. Because we thought, you know, we, we we called it the responsible company because we thought we can be responsible. We can look at what we're doing and make the changes that are possible to be made at a certain time. And, and in that, we have agency and we accept um, responsibility for what we're doing. But nothing we were doing then and not much of what we're doing now could be regarded as sustainable in the sense that we're actually giving back to the planet more than we're taking. Mm. But when we look at the potential for sustainable agriculture, when we look at the idea of regenerative agriculture, that really is. If we create topsoil, we can create it a lot faster than nature can. We're actually giving back to the planet as much or more than we're taking. So that's kind of our new North Star. But it, it made me think about the whole idea of sustainability. And I, I think people still think of sustainability as a kind of the moderate approach and regenerative as the more uh, uh, radical or uh, there are more things you have to do because it's more of a holistic look at things. But to me, I think you, you actually get to sustainability through regenerative action. But that's really what we need to be thinking about is how do we restore nature? How do we restore human communities which are fractured and we've taken a lot from them? Um, that Globalism has been good in a lot of ways, but it has really hurt uh, civil society. It's really hurt the family. It's really hurt local communities. Uh- you know, Vincent, we talked a lot today yeah. about fair trade, yeah. uh, polyester, yeah. um, kind of how Patagonia started um, with rock climbing and yeah. how you were able to charge a, a high quality product and how that kind of led into the ability to sustain that yeah. that purpose of protecting the planet. Um, 
I, I guess my la- not my last question, my second la- last question I have for you is business owners listening to this right now, especially in fashion startups, got plenty of friends trying to build a fashion company right now, yeah. you know, um, what's one piece of advice that you give them to, to have them take that next step towards um, a mission maybe like Patagonia's? Well, for startups, um, I, I think that um, we talked earlier about what would, what would established companies do next. And we talked about this idea of, of purpose. And, and I think if you're starting a business now, it's really important to under, understand what your unique What's unique about your operation? I mean, every company is is like every every person is different, and every snowflake. Well, so is every business and every business culture. So, what makes your little beginning business an an individual? And what is something that? How do you want to cultivate that individuality over time? What are the values that you hold dearest? And how are you going to build your business? in coherence with those values and to act out those values and help other people act on those values. And I would do that all at the beginning. I wouldn't say, okay, I'm gonna be, I'm getting started, so I'm gonna kind of go off base here. And when I get to be five million or I get to be 10 million or 50 billion or 50 million, I'm gonna decide to start to be a good person, right? Or I'm gonna start to give money to 1% for the planet then. It's much easier to set these expectations among all of your constituencies, among all your stakeholders, your investors, your employees, your customers, um, uh, your suppliers, right at the beginning so that everybody, you, everybody knows that language. And if you're consistent over time, everybody begins to respect it and it helps build a business. So I think it's much better to do that, to go through those sometimes difficult steps but I also think that's why B Corp startups are are doing better than other companies because people are looking at those important questions of social, uh, environmental, and uh, impact from the beginning. And how are you going to govern your company? How are you going to run it? Well said, Vincent. Thanks for answering that question. And uh, you know, you started out this conversation. Um, with your love for the outdoors, uh, with that experience that you had had being surfers and climbers and building this company for those people. Mm-hmm. Um, the earth has finite resources mm-hmm. and you were a leader in this space uh, by saying, we're gonna take action on this issue. Um, so last question I have for you, Vincent, is what is your definition of a real leader? Well, I think people conflate leadership with with individual leaders, and I think that a real leadership is actually exercised by groups of people and by teams. And so, in the sense of the individuals who are running those teams and running those groups, it's how are they able to identify the strengths and the values and help those people act on them. Um, I think that that's more. I think that's pretty important. I like that a lot. So people listening out there, leadership, it's not as individual. It might be a little bit more holistic. Uh, Vincent, thank you so much for your time today. I had a pleasure um, speaking with you about Patagonia. Thanks for letting us into this uh, beautiful headquarters here in uh, Ventura, California. 
Uh, if you're listening to this on audio, uh, make sure you go online to real-leaders.com. Uh, you can check out this full interview on there, on also on YouTube and on Facebook. Um, and Vince, any last words about where people can find more information about Patagonia? Um, yeah, well, the website, we've got a kind of a wealth of information at patagonia.com. Um, there's an, an awful lot written about us. We even wrote a book called uh, Let My People Go Surfing. That's in its uh, second edition now. The, uh, the responsible uh, company covers a lot of this. So anyway, thanks for listening. Thanks for, thanks for coming to Ventura and talking to us. Absolutely. For Vincent Stanley, I'm Kevin Edwards telling you to all ways, keep it real. Thank you. Vincent, thank you so much, man. That was great. And thank you, lucky listeners, for tuning into this episode today of the Real Years Podcast with Vincent Stanley of Patagonia. What did we think today? Did you enjoy the episode? Let us know. Leave a review on any platform that you are listening to this podcast on currently. We would much appreciate that as we are always trying to improve your experience. Also, Patagonia was featured on the Real Years Magazine, 100 Top Impact Companies of 2020. You can find that magazine online right now for free at real-layers.com slash impact-awards. And for the high-growth impact CEOs out there, please join us at the Mo Summit here coming up on May 19th. In order to qualify, go to mo-summit.com and register today. All right, that's it for us, folks. Have a great day and always keep it real.